Well, good morning, church. Welcome to Citadel Square for those who are visiting, and happy Mother's Day to our mothers. Please raise your hand if you're a mother in this room. Let's give our mothers a round of applause. I see a lot of mothers in here. That's awesome. You guys really are superheroes, and we're so thankful um, for all of the mothers in our lives. Uh, so let's stand today as we worship the Lord and sing Christ Be Magnified.
What a privilege and what a gift. And as we think about uh, and prepare our hearts for the message that we're going to hear in just a little bit, we'll be looking at Psalm 112, uh, the characteristics of a godly person. Uh, And what better way to prepare our hearts for that than to look at another psalm that contrasts wicked versus good, what it looks like to be righteous, to be planted by the streams of water. Uh, And so let's look together at Psalm 1. Uh, you'll see cues on the screen. It's, if it says leader, I'll read it, and then it'll say all together, and we'll read that together. So Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Let's read this together. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now we're going to sing a song called Crowns. We haven't sung this as a congregation before, uh, but it is such a good song about the cross, uh, the God of the cross. And 
not only that, but as we think even tying this back into the book of Revelation, which we've been studying, as we think about the end when we will all be with Christ in glory before the throne, uh, we'll have crowns. We'll be given the crown of life for perseverance. Uh, we'll, we'll have, you know, wealth that comes as gifts from the Lord. But the question is, you know, what do we value the most? And what do we do with those crowns that we're given? And we think about the 24 elders and what they do is cast their crowns before the throne. Uh, and so that's what we are singing about now. How can we just surrender everything that we are and all that we value and all that we're given uh, before the lamb who is slain? before 
nothing that we can bring to you. We can bring no pride in riches or in gold. Uh, we can bring nothing of our own accord, um, nothing at all, Lord. It is the hill of, the, of Calvary that we cherish and that precious tree where the emblem of salvation stood and where Christ died for all of us. Uh, so Lord, we just bring our hearts now to you in worship. And we ask um, that if we struggle with this thought, if we struggle with the idea of our wealth being in the cross, that you would work in our hearts, you would soften us, that you would throw us entirely on you in dependence. And we thank you that you are a God who is worthy of our trust and that only in complete surrender to you with our wealth in the cross uh, can we find true joy, can we find true peace, contentment, and and ultimately, will we stand in glory? Uh, so we thank you that we can look forward to that because of what you have done on our behalf. We pray now for the rest of this service that your name would be glorified. Pray all of this in your name. Amen. Good morning, church. Yeah, there is much to celebrate this morning in the life of our church. And one of the first things is it is Mother's Day. So for every mother, grandmother, expecting mother here this morning, we just want to wish you a happy Mother's Day. Um, and then in addition, there are two things that are happening or just happened in the life of our church that we want to celebrate together this morning. And the first is, if you're unaware, we actually have a very strong and growing college ministry at our church. We have students all from, that come from College of Charleston, from CSU, and some of the, the smaller tech schools in the area as well. And they had a graduation this weekend. And some of our students took that next step and got their, their diploma and were able to graduate this past weekend. And we just want to celebrate them and just say congratulations. Y'all did it. And... One of the craziest school years I can't even wrap my head around. And so congratulations to y'all. And then next, within our church family, we have two members, Dallas and Janie Wilson, who lead a, a biblical counseling ministry known as the Peninsula Biblical Counseling Ministries. And their heart and their passion is to equip uh, church members to be certified biblical counselors so that the church can be served and cared for. And they went through this long process to become certified for their ministry to be certified through the ACBC. And they actually just got confirmation over the past few weeks that they received that certification. And so now for anybody who wants to go through their program, they can actually, you can now be certified as a biblical counselor if you complete it. So let's just give a round of applause to the Lord for, for what he's done and for all the accomplishments that are happening in the life of our church this morning. Um, I'm going to... Join us in prayer, and we're going to prepare our hearts and minds for the preaching of God's word. So join with me. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. Uh, we thank you um, that we, if we have trusted in you, are um, forever and eternally uh, adopted sons and daughters of you. That we were once dead, but now we have been brought to life because of your sacrifice on our behalf. And so when we gather here today, we don't just gather um, as individuals, but we gather as a body. We gather as a family. And so I pray that this morning, um, as individuals walk through um, the doors of our church, uh, people are carrying many different uh, hurts, 
with themselves. Maybe they're carrying celebrations like we just mentioned. Or maybe they're just, there's a lot of things going on in the midst of their life that they don't know how to make sense of. I pray that this morning that your spirit will meet them where they are. That they will feel comfort and encouragement. And um, that they will be equipped and challenged by your word this morning. And above all, Scott, I pray that you will be glorified through our worship and through our gathering. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning, church. How's everybody doing on this beautiful Mother's Day? All right. Glad you're doing good, Jeremy. Hope everybody else is doing good, too. Welcome to Citadel Square. If you're new to us, so glad that you came to join us for worship today. My name is Steve Lindemeyer. I'm one of the pastors here. Such a great uh, joy for me to have a chance to preach this morning out of Psalm 112. We're going to be looking at that. If you want to take your Bibles and open there to Psalm 112, you can do that. And we're going to dive into that here in just a minute. Before we do, though, happy Mother's Day. I get to say it one more time. You've already heard it a couple times. Special shout out to my wife, Marie. Awesome mother. Awesome wife, happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers. We, we uh, commend what Paul says in Ephesians 6. Paul says this, honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Isn't that an incredible statement from Paul back to uh, the Old Testament command to honor your father and your mother? We want to do that this morning. Uh, if you're a mother or soon-to-be mother, we see you. We recognize you. We rejoice in the Lord because of you, and we want to honor you this morning. At the same time, we know that this can be a difficult day uh, for some. Uh, some of you may have lost a mother in the past year or in the recent past, and this is a difficult day for you. Some of you don't have great relationships with your mother, and today might be a reminder of that, and you're seeking comfort from the Lord as you uh, deal with that. Some of you have potentially lost babies to miscarriage or in other ways, and, and today could be a very difficult day uh, for you. Some of you long to be mothers, and uh, you haven't experienced that blessing yet for whatever reason. And we want to acknowledge that. We, we at Citadel Square, we're a church family, and in a family, you can oftentimes have a dichotomy of, motion, of emotions. You can be happy and sad at the same time. You can rejoice and weep simultaneously. And I think that's why the scripture calls us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So wherever you are coming into this space this morning, there's, there's one thing that's true of all of us though. Whether or not our mother is currently living or not, all of us have a mother. And today we pause to give honor uh, according to uh, Paul's reminder to us from the Old Testament, to honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. So thank you for being here this morning. If you haven't turned there already, go ahead and turn to Psalm 112. We're going to take a little bit of a detour from Revelation this morning, and we're going to dive into a psalm right in the middle of your Bible. It's Psalm 112, and what we're going to see in Psalm 112 is the characteristics and attributes of a godly person. Have you ever wondered, you know, I had a friend in college, and, and uh, he said, you know, my goal in life, my vision statement is to know God, to be like him, and to make him known. And I thought, that is an awesome vision statement. Can I adopt that for my own? To know God, to be like him, and to make him known. We know how we know God. We study the scripture. We come to hear sermons. We engage with other believers to hear what they're learning about God. We know it's important to make God known. We want to help others who don't know him come into a knowledge 
of him and turn to him in faith and repentance. But what does it mean to be like God or to be like Christ? That was just this ongoing question in my mind. I, I have some concept of that. I have some idea of that. But what exactly does it look like? So here's the question I think Psalm 112 is going to answer for us this morning. What does it look like to live a godly life? What does it look like? Psalm 112 has the answer. Before we dive into some 12, Psalm 112, it's good to have a little bit of a context. So Psalm, Psalm 111 and Psalm 112, back to back in your Bibles, are somewhat parallel psalms. Uh, one commentator called them twin psalms. You can look at them on the same page if you're turning in the Pew Bible to page 477. You'll see them on the same page. Look at how many verses are in each of those psalms. Ten. The exact same number of verses. Look at the first intro in both of those psalms. What does it say? Praise the Lord. Psalm 111 starts praise the Lord. Psalm 112 starts praise the Lord. Psalm 113 starts praise the Lord. But Psalm 111 and 112 are very interesting in this way. We would not get this from reading the English Bible, but in the Hebrew Bible, it's an acrostic poem. It's an acrostic poem where each line of the poem begin with successive letters in the Hebrew alphabet. It would be like us reading a poem that first line starts with A, second line starts with B, third line starts with C, all the way through our alphabet. That's essentially what's happening in the Hebrew Bible in Psalm 111 and Psalm 112. And here's where it gets interesting. Psalm 111 teaches us about the characteristics and the attributes of God. Who is he and why is that significant? So Psalm 111 could be, if, if I were to title Psalm 111, it would be the, um, the, uh, a portrait of God. But Psalm 112 is a portrait not of God, but a portrait of godliness. So in Psalm 111, we're worshiping and celebrating who God is. And when we come to Psalm 12, 112, we're worshiping and celebrating who God is in you. Think about that with me for a minute. It's an interesting psalm in that regard because most psalms have as its focus God himself and we worship God for who he is. Psalm 112 has as its focus the work of God in his people. So have you ever seen somebody else around you, a friend, a coworker, um, somebody that you knew from your past, have you ever seen somebody exemplify Christ in their life? And oftentimes we praise that person. Oh, she's such a generous person. Oh, he's such a kind individual. Oh, he really knows the Bible. Oh, she really is selfless in the way that she uh, gives herself to one another. What Psalm 112 is going to have us do is look at the characteristics of God in one another and then give God the glory for his work in you. That's where we're going with Psalm 112. Let's read it together. I'm going to read through all 10 verses. Read along with me in your Bible or follow along with me in your Bible. If that's a Bible on your phone or one that you brought with you or one that you have right there in the pew racks in front of you. Join with me as I read Psalm 112. I'm going to read all 10 verses. This is the Word of God. It says this. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commands. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. 
He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we believe that this morning. We believe that this is your word that is infallible and inerrant. We believe that you use your word to conform us to your image. We believe that it is powerful and living and active and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart. So would you do that this morning as we open up this psalm and learn about your faithfulness to us, in us, and through us, that we would rejoice in you for that reality. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, this psalm, Psalm 112, has 10 verses. That's a lot to get through. Uh, so I'm going to tell you a little bit of an intro about how we're going to go about this. I'm going to drill down to about, into about four of the 10 verses. And the others, we're going to do a quick flyby and just hit the main highlight points from those verses. And you'll kind of follow along to see which ones we're going to drill down in and which ones we're going to do a quick flyby through. But the first verse, here we go. Verse 1, Psalm 112. How does it start again? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The psalm is going to be teaching us about God's work in and through the lives of other individuals or even of ourselves. But it starts by pushing our mind and our hearts Godward and says, praise the Lord. So many of the psalms are great for us to awaken our hearts and our minds to worship. And Psalm 112 is no different. Psalm 111 starts that way. Psalm 112 starts that way. And it gets a run up into really what Psalm 113 through 118 are known as is the Hallel Psalms, the praise Psalms. So this is a little bit of a runway up to those Psalms. Each of these three beginning with this phrase, praise the Lord. Now, if you were reading a Hebrew Bible, you wouldn't see three words that say praise the Lord. You would see one word. And that one word is not so unfamiliar to you. You say, but Steve, I don't speak Hebrew. Well, actually, I don't either. But you'll be familiar with the one word that's used in Hebrew in which the English translator translates into three words, praise the Lord. And that one word is what? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. There are some English translations that don't try to translate hallelujah into another phrase. You actually open the Bible in some translations and you see the very first word of Psalm 112 is hallelujah. And the reason that that is so important is because hallelujah in the context of the Hebrew language, it says something that's so magnificent and so majestic and so complete that it's hard to find another phrase that equals its power. So actually the word hallelujah is in many cases not translated into a phrase, but it's transliterated to where it just says hallelujah. And if you speak any other language and you have 
written or spoken in that language in relation to Christian worship, one of the things that you're going to see is all the languages translate hallelujah, hallelujah. If you read this in Spanish, it's going to say hallelujah. In Italian, it's going to say hallelujah. We studied the Thai language when we were overseas in Thailand, and it says hallelujah because there's no equivalent, there's no other phrase, there's no other word that can grasp the weightiness and the, and the God-filled worship of the word hallelujah. It actually comes from two Hebrew words that are put together. The first word is hallel. And hallel in the Hebrew language means to boast or to brag on or to make a show of, even to the point of looking foolish. That is, that's hallel. Yah is a shortened form of our word for God, Jehovah. So it's to make much of, to brag on, to laud and worship God. I heard one commentator using a little bit of a play on words, and he says, it's Hallel and it's Yah, and all we need is you. I thought that was pretty clever. I didn't come up with that. But it's Hallelujah. We need the Hallel of boasting and bragging in the Lord. We need the Yah, our object of our affection, the object of our worship is God himself. And what God calls us to is for us to participate in that uninhibited worship of him. Have you ever praised God to the point of looking foolish? Well, that would be foolish. <laughs> So we try not to do that, right? Is there anybody in Scripture that ever praised God to the point of looking foolish? Do you remember David in 2 Chronicles 6 when he's dancing and worshiping before the Ark of the Covenant? He was uninhibited in his worship. He was ready and willing to be vulnerable and transparent before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to demonstrate physically his worship of his heart and his mind. It made me think of, you know, what, what is, when do we act in that way that sometimes doesn't make sense, right? How many of you have kids that play little league sports? <laughs> and we'll be in the stands watching our six-year-old kick the balls like, Johnny, go, kick it! And then he kicks it, and we're like, Johnny did it! And you're sitting in the stands next to him, and you're like, did he score? It's like, no, he just finally kicked it for the first time that we brag and we boast and we celebrate the small accomplishments of our children to the point that sometimes it's like, really? Do we ever worship God in the same way? I'm not asking you to be foolish. I'm asking you to demonstrate with your physical actions the content of an overflowing heart of worship. Let's be honest, Citadel Square, we're, we're a little bit reserved, are we not? Uh, AJ had to give a whole sermon just to get us to clap. <laughs> it's like, we've clapped three times this morning, though, so we're good. I think God is calling us to worship with our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. So this psalm starts, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man that fears the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? See, in our English context, we often associate fear with what? We often associate fear with being afraid. Or being scared. So it's hard. Am I supposed to be afraid of God? Is he out to get me? Am I supposed to be scared that somehow his wrath is going to punish me? You know, so thankful for our study through the book of Revelation. But we've been learning a lot about God's wrath and his justice. 
And it can be easy in that context if we don't truly understand the gospel to have a scary, frightful fear of the Lord. But that's not what the psalmist is talking about here. The psalmist is talking about this word fear as a profound respect and awe. It's a reverence and an honor as we stand in awe of the one who saved our souls. It's a holy admiration of God in our lives. Because in this sense, God is all full. We should be full of awe. See, we get that word wrong in our English language as well. We talk about, we take a sip of a drink we've never tried and we say, that was awful. We watch that TV show that somebody recommended and goes, really, that was awful. But the word should be the opposite meaning of that. It should be full of awe. Not that God is awful in the way that we understand him, but we should be full of awe in our worship of him as those two words come together to say hallelujah. Blessed is the man that fears the Lord. It's not a frightful fear of God's wrath and vengeance, but a profound sense of his majesty, his greatness, his love, and his provision for me and you. There's a great book out, a fairly new book called Rejoice and Tremble. Michael Reeves puts it this way in the book Rejoice and Tremble. He says, the fear of God is an intense and happy fullness. It's so much more than just awe and reverence and a deep respect, although it is that. But it's more expressive than that. The fear of God does not arise from a perception of God as hazardous, but of God as glorious. Do we fear God in that way? Does it lead you to joyful exuberance and happy exaltation of God? The verse goes on in verse one to say, who greatly delights in his commands. This man of righteousness, this, this portrait of godliness, this person that loves God with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength, it's gonna be exemplified in their posture and their relationship to God's word, to God's word and his commands. It says the godly person delights. And it doesn't just say the godly person delights in God's commands. Now think about that. When you think of God's commands, what do you often think about? Does it make you excited and happy when you think about God's commands? Oftentimes it's, oh, I know I'm supposed to be doing that and I'm not doing that as good as I should and I'm not living up to the standard that God wants for me and oh, I don't even wanna read the Bible today because I'm afraid I might be convicted and oftentimes it's not great delight. It can feel somewhat burdensome but the posture of the godly towards his commands, his precepts, his testimony. Matter of fact, Psalm 119, if you're struggling at all with your understanding and your posture towards God's word, take time this week to read Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm in your Bible, but over and over and over and over, it talks about how sweet God's commands are, how awesome God is to give us his word. It's a celebration and a rejoicing in God's word, I commend Psalm 119 to you. The psalmist didn't only delight in his commands, but he greatly delighted in his commands. The Hebrew word for greatly means exceedingly much. What can be described in your life of exceedingly much? I sleep 
exceedingly much. I have coffee exceedingly much. Um, I complain exceedingly much. Has it ever been said of you, certainly not me, he just, he spends way too much time in God's word. He needs to back off a little bit. Right, that's the, the essence of what the psalmist is saying is that he doesn't just delight in God's commands, but he greatly delights in God's commands. As I was reading this this week, a, a vivid picture came to my mind, and it's an illustration I think will help us understand this idea of greatly delighting in God's commands. As we were on the mission field in Thailand, we had a chance to visit a leper colony at one point. I didn't know they still existed but apparently they do. There's one in Thailand. Now these were individuals who had been previously affected by leprosy, didn't currently have leprosy. We weren't in danger in that way. But as we spent time at the leper colony, the lady who runs the, the camp, um, the, the leper colony was a Christian. And she began to tell us how she had ministered to many of those who were ravishly affected by leprosy. She said there was one old individual who had leprosy so much to the point that he had gone blind. But after he had gone blind, there was a point in time where he placed his faith and trust in Christ. And so they found out that there's a uh, Braille Bible that he could read. So they ordered him a copy of the Braille Bible, and for days and days, for hours and hours, he would read the scriptures with his fingertips. Boy, don't we have it easy. And he would digest the Word of God by reading Braille. But at some point, the leprosy continued its effects and he lost the feeling in his fingertips and could no longer read Braille. And if I remember right, I think he had to have some of his fingers amputated because of the disease. And, he went on, and she went on to tell us a story and she said, but he was not going to give up. He loved God's word so much that he learned to read Braille with his tongue. That he would literally rub his tongue across the elevated braille letters so that he could take in the word of God. He said, sometimes I would read in braille with my tongue to the point that my tongue would bleed. Wow, God, help us to delight in your commands. Psalm 119.97 says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Jeremiah, I love, Jeremiah was a bold character. And I love Jeremiah's words in Jeremiah 15, 16. He says, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. Oh, would it be that we would delight ourselves in God's word in the same way. So what is the difference between duty and delight? What is your approach to the word of God? Do you have a I have to mindset or I get to mindset. And here, let me, let me uh, explain the difference between duty and delight. Guys, it's your anniversary coming up, whenever that is. You know it's your anniversary. You know you're going to be good to your wife. Make sure you don't forget. I have it written in my ring, just in case I ever forget. It's right there. Your, your anniversary's coming, and, and you're on your way home. You show up at the front door, and you knock on the door, or you ring the doorbell, and, and there in your hand is a bouquet of flowers. And your wife comes and answers the door, and you say, Happy anniversary. And she says, oh, honey, they're so, that's so sweet of you. And your response is, well, honey, I'm your husband, and I had to pick up milk at Food Line anyway, and I saw these on the way out, and so I just picked them up because it's my duty as your husband. Uh, recommendation, don't do that. 
men in the room, uh, married men in the room. Let, let, let's flip the script and, and put it this way. You come home with a bouquet of flowers and you knock on the door and you ring the doorbell and your wife comes to the door and you say, honey, uh, happy anniversary. Look at these flowers that I got for you. And, and she goes, they're beautiful. That is so sweet of you. And say, honey, I've been thinking about you all day. I couldn't wait to stop by the florist and get you the flowers that I knew you would love. I know you love yellow roses, and so I had the florist add these yellow roses in there. And I know that the way that you love the contrast of colors when the yellow roses hit the white flowers, and so I, I had her put some white flowers in this bouquet because I was just thinking about you. And when I walked into the florist shop, I passed this flower on my left, and, and the smell that was coming off of that flower smelled just like your perfume. And so I added some of those into this bouquet because I was just thinking about you. Happy anniversary. I'm so thankful I'm married to you, and I'm grateful that I get to spend the rest of my life with you. You see the difference between duty and delight? God, I know I'm supposed to read your word, and so I'll give you these 30 minutes before I go to work today. Oh, yeah, I got to do that one-year Bible reading plan, and so I better get that from the church. Oh, yeah, I'm going to feel guilty if I don't do this, and so I I better do it. Or your law is my meditation day and night. I rejoice greatly in your commands. And if you're anything like me, you're asking the question right now, but Steve, sometimes I I don't feel that way. Sometimes it's more of a discipline than a delight. And I would say sometimes our pathway to delighting in God begins with duty. I heard it said, I was talking to somebody after the first service and they put it in a better way than I could say it. And they said, discipline leads to desire, which leads to delight. Sometimes it takes us just simply being disciplined to submit ourselves to the word of God. And even when we don't feel like it, say, God, I'm not feeling it right now, but I'm gonna open your word and I'm gonna spend some time with you because I wanna delight in your commands and it can be transformative. And I would say, as, as I, I heard about from uh, illustration from John Piper one time, he says, sometimes I don't feel like studying the scripture. I'm like, really, John Piper? Doesn't feel like studying the scripture? Yeah, he doesn't sometimes. And he says, but I'll, in discipline, I'll open the Bible. And somewhere in the first 5, 10, 15, maybe 20 minutes, I went into it with duty, but at some point, delight came into my spirit and in my heart, and I didn't even recognize it. It was similar to stepping down onto a boat that was docked in tidal waters. And I stepped onto the boat when it was low tide. And at some point, my heart and my affections began to wake up as I immersed myself in God's word. And when I came out of the boat, I was five feet higher up in the canal and didn't even know it because God awakened my heart. Our goal is delight. It may start with discipline to get to desire to overflow into delight. For the godly man, holiness is his happiness. Devotion is his delight. Truth is his treasure. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord and greatly delights in his commands. The next few verses until we get to seven, we're gonna do a quick flyby, but I I want you to see it in its context. What is God describing? What are the characteristics of godliness? What is a portrait of godliness that we see here in Psalm 112? Verse two, his offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Not only is it a blessing to us, but God says, I will bless you and your children and your children's children. 
Exodus 20, in the midst of the Ten Commandments, God says, God shows love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. What an incredible privilege to be under the blessing of others that God has given to our heritage. What a blessing it will be to our children and our children's children when we walk with God for him to demonstrate that blessing into future generations. You see, you may be here this morning and you may come from a broken home. You may come from a not so good family tree. And God's promise to you is this. You can't do anything about the, the branches that are above you in your family tree. But the godly can do everything about the branches that come after them. Not in and of themselves, but in, tr in faith and trust and dependence on the Lord. Verse 3, wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. God brings us to have an eternal mindset when we think about our relationship with God. It's not just beneficial for the here and now. It's beneficial forever, for all eternity. See, wealth and riches are in his house. Now, you read this, and I read this, and I oh, well, is that the health and wealth and prosperity gospel? Like, there it is. All I got to do is trust Christ and I'll win the lottery. All I got to do is trust Christ and my retirement account will multiply tenfold. There's too many other scriptures that help us understand that that's not the case. That it doesn't mean immediate wealth and riches will be in our house. It's certainly spiritual wealth and riches. And another interesting point right here is that when we come to Christ, he begins to change us in our values and our principles. We may go from being lazy to being hardworking because of Christ. We may go from being selfish to being generous. We may go from being dishonest to being honest. The Bible commands us to make the most of our time because the days are, are evil. All of these things lend towards not just spiritual fruit, but physical and material fruit as well. Verse 4. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and merciful and righteous. This is a descriptive of the man of godliness. Notice what this verse doesn't say. Right? Verse 4 says light dawns in the darkness. It doesn't say the godly won't experience darkness. We know the reality of our walk with Christ doesn't deliver us from hardship and suffering, and hurt, and pain. Matter of fact, in John, Jesus' promise to us is this. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. If we get into the Christian life with the perception that everything's going to work out fine, and everything's going to get better, then we may be uh, disappointed. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In this world you will have darkness, but I am the light of the world. In this world you will have difficulty and hardship, but Psalm 119, 105 says, the word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path, that when I'm in the darkness is when I need the light. The light is the word. If I want to illuminate the way through my darkness, I do that through the very word of God by delighting in it as verse 1 commended us. 
And it's interesting that this verse tells us that the godly person is gracious, merciful, and righteous. If you're still open to your Bible there on page 477, look at Psalm 111, verse 4. This speaks of God. It says, He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. That which God is, you can become as He sanctifies you and makes you more like Him. Psalm 111, God is gracious and merciful. Psalm 112, so is the godly. Verse 5, it is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. Are you a generous person? Are you willing to lend your belongings to another person or your money to another person? Do you realize that your stuff is not your stuff? It's God's stuff that he's entrusted to you for a time to be a steward of. The godly man, it is well with him, and he deals generously, and he lends. He conducts his affairs with justice. He's fair and impartial. He does not take sides unnecessarily. He's honest in his dealings. Church, we should be the most generous people on the face of the earth. Luke 12 says, from the one who's been given much, much has been entrusted. And from the one, much is expected. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. You've been entrusted with incredible blessings. Now God says, that which I've given to you, my goal is to get through you so that you can be a blessing to those around you. Verse six, for the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. I like the the, uh, language of the NIV right here. It says, uh, the righteous will never be shaken. Sometimes you just feel like your life is all over the place. You're shaken and you're moved from one thing to the other and anxieties and worries fill your heart. And God's promised us is we can live in such a way with a trust and dependence on him where we will not be moved. And the reason that we will not be moved is not because we're not in the quicksand, the cares and the worries of the world that swirl around us. It's because in the midst of the quicksand, we have quicksand, we have an immovable rock, the rock of Christ that we can place our feet on and stand immovable. You remember the old hymn, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. The life of the righteous stands. And it stands as an enduring memorial of God's faithfulness. The psalmist says here, he, the godly person, the righteous person, that person that trusts in the Lord, he will be remembered how long? He'll be remembered for a week, a month, a couple years. He'll be remembered until his retirement age. Scripture says he will be remembered forever. He will be remembered forever. That's certainly true that God is going to remember him forever, for all eternity. But I think there's another reality here, that we will even be remembered in the lives of one another for all eternity, or at least in in this life, and, and certainly for eternity. I want you to call to mind right now, who is the person in your life that has had the greatest spiritual influence on you? Bring that person's name to mind. Who are they? 
the person in your life or the persons in your life that has had the greatest spiritual influence on your life? Follow-up question. Will you ever forget them? Will you ever forget the investment that they made in your life spiritually? Relationships come and go. Friendships come and go. You're never going to forget that person that had an eternal influence in your life. He will be remembered forever. Verse 7, he is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. Again, it doesn't say that the righteous person won't experience bad news. It says that the righteous person won't fear bad news. There's a big difference in the two. And the way that I want to sum it up is this way. Because the first verse told us to fear God. Not in the way of being afraid of. Now this verse is saying don't fear bad news. We can fear one thing, God, or we will fear everything. You got it? We can fear one thing or we will fear everything. We will fear bad news. We will fear and become anxious and worried. And the psalmist goes straight to the heart in this verse by telling us that the issue really is with our heart. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. See, the internal condition of our heart is what prepares us for bad news. And we prepare ourselves for bad news in the future by walking with God today. If we wait until the bad news comes, oh, I wasn't ready. It's too late to get ready. That's why Ephesians 6, when Paul talks about putting on the armor of God, he says in Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you will be able to stand. Here's my question. When is the day of evil coming? Do you know? When is the moment of bad news coming? Will you know? And Paul says, put on the full armor of God before you even get to the battle. Because when you get to the battle, the bullets are flying and it's too late. God's grace is sufficient. His power is made perfect in our weakness. It's never too late, but you get the point. The best way we can prepare for bad news tomorrow is to walk with God today. You see why he's not afraid of bad news? What does it say at the end of the verse 7? Trusting in the Lord. As we trust in the Lord, we put our confidence, we put our hope, we put our satisfaction, we put our resolve in God and what he has done, not in us and our ability to figure it out, to fight it out, to get through it, to press through. Why? Because he trusts in the Lord. He trusts in the one who is sovereign and in control. He trusts in the one who says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. He trusts in the one who says he works out all things for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. He trusts in the one who ultimately defeated sin and hell and death and the grave, the worst possible bad news there could be. He trusts in the one who defeated that bad news. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Psalm 46, one through three says, God is our refuge and strength. He's a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth give way, 
Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble, we will not fear because God is with us. See, many great heroes of the faith dealt with some bad news, didn't they? Joseph, thrown into a pit by his brothers, later isolated in prison in Egypt. We think of Job that Steve talked about last week that faced bad news of the death of his cattle, then the death of his children, and then the boils and the uh, disfigurement of his own skin. We think of John the Baptist who certainly heard the whispers of the guards outside of his cell talking of his beheading. We think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, not wanting necessarily to face the cross, although willing and submissive to the Father looking forward to the cross that was to come. However, bad news often prepares the way for good news, doesn't it? Joseph, although thrown into prison, thrown into a pit, later became somewhat of the prime minister and and led to the salvation of many, the physical salvation of many. Job's misery and suffering endured for about 30 chapters in Job until new family and a new fortune broke forth at the end. John the Baptist did lose his head. Bad news turned into reality. But in the blink of an eye, he went from prison to paradise. Even the worst news is not awful news because we know Jesus, our eternity is guaranteed, and we trust in him. What kind of bad news are you fearing this morning? We live in a culture of anxiety and worry and depression. And a lot of times it's because our mind is consumed with all of the what ifs and could be's. Well, what if this happens? And oh no, this might. And I don't know how I'll deal with it if it does. And these things monopolize our thoughts and our emotions. And a friend of mine told me in dealing with this idea of fear that was perplexing her, she said, I realize that God's providence is not there for my imaginations, but his providence will be there in my reality if it were to come to pass. That God will be with you. He will walk you through the hardships and the difficulties and the sufferings. This this verse, verse seven of Psalm 112 became a, a solid rock on which I had to stand. A bedrock principle about a year and a half ago when we went through this season, we were just getting bad news after bad news after bad news. I, I looked back in my journal and, and, uh, and here's a couple things that we were up against. When God enlightened this part of scripture for me in a way that soothed my soul. It was on November 16th when I got a call from my son that he had been in a rear-end collision on the interstate in the pouring down rain, and so I had to rush out and help him deal with that and the insurance and so forth. Thankfully, nobody was injured. It was nine days later when I got a call from my youngest son's friend. Why is he calling me? And I saw his name on my phone, and he said, Mr. Lindemeyer, please get to the trampoline park quickly because Aaron's just broken his leg. Oh, gosh. Day before Thanksgiving. Um, He did break his leg. He broke it in three places. Uh, a couple days later, let's see, three days later, uh, I got a call from an unknown number while on a date with my wife, and for some reason I just didn't feel good about it, usually don't answer numbers that I don't know, and I answered this one because something didn't sit right in my heart, and it was my son, he said, uh, Dad, I've just been in a major car accident, I was T-bone going through an intersection, and it flipped my car 360 degrees. The reason I'm calling you from a strange phone is because a passerby helped me, my phone flew out of the car in the wreck, thankfully 
uninjured. Six days after that, I got a call from my mom that she had fallen and broken her arm. Four days after that, I got a call from my mother-in-law that she had been in an accident and totaled her car and two others. Five days after that, I got a call from our mechanic where our car was and he said, uh, extensive repairs are needed on your vehicle. One day after that, we got a call from our AC guy that says the heat in your house is totally out and needs to be replaced. It was boom, 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 boom. And I got to the place where I was literally dreading answering the next phone call because I didn't know what was on the other end. I got to the point physically where my heart would start running fast and I would start almost hyperventilating at the fear of the news that might be on the other side of a phone call. And God reminded me of his bedrock word of God that is infallible and inerrant and reminded me that you trust in Christ and you will have no fear of bad news. Would your heart be firm and steadfast in him? grateful for his word. And in, in the next verse, chapter, uh, sorry, verse eight, it says that his heart is steady. There's another version that says his heart is upheld. And I want you to understand that in verse eight, it's more of a passive reality than it was in verse seven. Verse seven is get your heart right and trust in the Lord. Be active in your faith. And verse eight is this idea of God upholding our heart even when it fails. There are certain times when I know the good I ought to do and I can't seem to do it and it's in those moments when his power is made perfect in my weakness and he upholds my heart when it is failing. Psalm 145, 14 says, the Lord upholds all who are falling and he raises up all who are bowed down. That when my heart falls, I pray that so will my knees because when my heart falls, I need to fall to my knees and ask God to uphold me, to take this promise for face value that says his heart is steady, his heart is secure, his heart is upheld by the Lord even when it seems to be falling. And I'm gonna jump down to verse 10 as we close because verse 10 is a little bit odd to see in this text. All the first nine verses have talked about God and his goodness and his attributes and how they play themselves out, how the attributes of God are demonstrated in the life of the righteous. And now we see in verse 10 the juxtaposition of that reality. And it's a sad reality. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. In the billions of people on the face of the earth, there's two categories, according to God and his word. There's the wicked and there's the righteous. The righteous are not righteous because they're great. The righteous are not righteous because they attain that on their own. The righteous are righteous because of God's mercy and his grace and the reconciliation that he provided between them and the Father. There's the righteous and there's the wicked. And the psalmist says, the wicked man sees the life of the godly and they become angry. They become angry because all that the righteous person possesses are all that he desires. He's just unwilling to submit and surrender to the Lord to get it. So he gnashes his teeth. He's angry at God's righteousness in the life of another person. His heart melts away. 
You see, God calls our heart gold in the New Testament. And when we come up against heat, the heat of circumstances, the heat of suffering, the heat of hardship, what it does to gold, what heat does to gold is purify it. But when ice comes in contact with heat, it melts away. As we've been studying in Revelation, the judgment of God and his wrath, it's real, it's decisive, it's agonizing, and it's forever. But it doesn't have to be for us. God is offering us the free gift of grace and salvation for all eternity. And in one moment, through a surrendered heart to him, it can be said of us in the blink of an eye, all that is true of Psalm 112. Not because we're great in and of ourselves, but because God is great, his mercy is great, his righteousness is great, and his forgiveness is extensive. God can change your heart from a heart of ice that will melt away into a heart of gold that will be refined into a precious element for his glory and his honor. Psalm 111 is a portrait of God. Psalm 112 is a portrait of godliness. Let's thank God and worship him together for his work of sanctification in us. And when we see his work of sanctification in the lives of one another, let's rejoice and worship him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning that we can rejoice in your goodness and in your mercy and in your kindness and in your grace. We thank you for the way that you demonstrate that in us and through us. God, we are unworthy to in any way exemplify God Almighty, but you allow us to exemplify you. So God, where we fail in doing that, forgive us. Where our hearts are weak, uphold us. Where we thrive in doing that, help us to rejoice and experience great joy and great delight. We worship you this morning and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we have a special opportunity to uh, celebrate one of the ordinance of the church and that's the, uh, the Lord's Supper, or communion. So we're gonna have a team come up and pass out the elements here, but I wanna give a few thoughts before we do that. A lot of times we come to this time of worship, we come to communion and we think, well, it's just tradition. Somebody says, oh, how often does your church do communion? Oh, well, our church does it every week. Well, our church does it every month. Well, we do it every quarter. And then we just kind of get into this rote celebration of communion where it's just what we do occasionally and we don't think much about it. Our regular rhythm here is every other, uh, sorry, every second Sunday, the second Sunday of every month. But why do we celebrate communion? It's not just out of tradition. It's out of a deep reality that Jesus Christ has died for you and for me. And when we take of the bread, it reminds us of the body that was shed on the cross, the body that was broken on the cross. When we take of the juice, it reminds us of the blood that was shed on the cross for you and me. In Hebrews, it says that there is no, without blood, there is no sacrifice for sins. Had Jesus not died on the cross for us, there would be no forgiveness for you and me because you can't earn it in and of yourselves. So we come to the table and we remember and we repent as God reveals sin to us in our lives. 
And we reconcile with one another. It's one of the reasons that the church is called to gather together and take communion because God may bring to your mind some friction that you have with another brother or sister in Christ and may lead you to go be reconciled to that brother, reconciled to that sister. We remember his death. We repent of our sins. We're reconciled to God through his blood and to one another as we take of communion. So if your personal confession and testimony is that you trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you've come to the place of repentance and faith in him. And you surrender all that you are to him in obedience to uh, your walk with him. Then we invite you to the table. We invite you to come and participate in communion. If you've not yet come to that place where you've placed your first personal faith in Christ, I would ask you to simply observe, but abstain from the elements. Paul gives a pretty strict warning in 1 Corinthians 11 where he says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood. He will eat and drink judgment on himself. So as we celebrate communion as the body of Christ, I would ask you to simply observe if you do not yet know him personally. But for those of us who are united with Christ by faith, by the finished work of Christ on the cross, this is an awesome time to quiet our hearts, to be still before him, to thank him for what he's done, and to ask him to reveal any sin in our lives that we can confess that and be made right with him through the blood of Christ. So I'm gonna ask the team to come up to distribute the elements. Just hang on to those. I'm gonna give you some direction as you receive those, and the band's gonna play as you receive the elements.
fitting song for us to worship to as we come to the table. Once an enemy of God, but now seated at the table. We're going to be seated at a table for all eternity with God in heaven. And yet we get to be seated at a table with one another and in right relationship with God right now. So we come to the table of the Lord's Supper to celebrate that reality. As I lead us through a time of partaking of the elements. First thing, just to note, these are a little bit different than the ones we gave out last month, and these are a little bit more difficult to open. So please, as we get to the bread, only lift the top portion of cellophane. It's the thin one. And then we'll get to the juice, and that's the thicker cellophane under that. If you do this in reverse order, it may be a little difficult for you to participate in communion, or at least you might be wearing some of the juice. Go ahead and uh, open the bread and take that out. And I'll lead us through Paul's exhortation of the Lord's Supper here in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Go ahead and take the bread. Now if you'll prepare the juice. Paul goes on to say, in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, and he will come again. Please drink. If you wouldn't mind on your exit, go ahead and take that uh, container with you and drop it in the receptacles there at the exit door. What a great opportunity for us. Beautiful day to be together in the house of the Lord and worship, celebrate our mothers, and learn and worship together in and, in and through the Word of God. We're thankful for you. Looks like a beautiful day outside. I hope you can go enjoy it. Let me pray us out as we dismiss. Father, the reality of this symbol is something we give far too little thought to. That God, you have transformed us by your grace. Your body was broken, your blood was spilled, that we might know you and be reconciled in a right relationship with God. So it's that that we celebrate today. Allow that to create great joy in us and overflowing worship from our mouths and our hearts and our minds and our actions. We celebrate you today and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great day. You're dismissed.